Okay. That's a good level. We are here with the podcast with Ben Monder, and we're um, we're going to try to talk about some things that he doesn't get to talk about all the time. As for most of us, it started with the radio. Like as a little kid, I didn't have a lot of records. My mother had a few rock records, but she wasn't super into music. But she just had. Uh, remember, she had that Cream record, Israeli Gears, and she had Hot Rocks, <laughs> Rolling Stones anthology, and 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 some Beatles records, and that was probably about it. But um, I remember at a really young age, maybe like four or five. I discovered pop radio and it was for some reason I, I remember it was really embarrassing to I, you know, for I didn't want my parents to know that I was listening to pop music on the radio so I would sneak into their room when they weren't around and, and turn the radio up just like just barely so that it could be audible and listen and just like fall into the world of uh, you know pop from 1969 or whatever and that was a good year for pop. It was, yeah. Yeah, those those years um, were, were inspiring and inspired. But, so it kind of started there, and I didn't really pick up the guitar till I was 11 or 12, and, and that was kind of by accident also, because my mother just had a, a guitar that in the house that she wasn't playing. I guess she thought it, at some point it was a good idea to get it, but she uh -huh. never, I never saw her play it. It was just sitting there in the closet, this crappy nylon string guitar. I wouldn't even call it a classical guitar, it was just a piece of crap. But, um, but I started picking it, picking it up, and, and I was trying to learn the violin at that, around that age, you know, like 10, 11, um, and that was not going well. Uh -huh. I, I hated it. You know, I hated to practice. It was uncomfortable. I didn't relate to the music I was trying to play, and I sounded really bad. And I think, I think I was, I was getting like undue encouragement because you know, I, I don't know, maybe my parents were thinking about unconditional positive reinforcement or something. Uh -huh. So, was, you know, they were saying, "Oh no, you're really talented. This sounds great." And you know, and I actually have, I have tapes. Of me playing, I have one tape that I that surfaced of me playing when I was like eleven years, ten years old, and it sounds horrible. It's just like sounds like some little kid sawing away, devoid of talent or wow. musicality. So, anyway, I didn't mean to get off on that. So tangent, it's lucky you switched to guitars. Lucky for everybody, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And so I kind of started sneaking around with the guitar, and actually, like violin teacher found out about my my infidelity and uh -huh. had a fit and fired me wow yeah he fired me from all lessons but it was for the best um and then sometimes i would i would actually but weirdly like i would see him around and and then he would always whenever i would see him because I, I went to the um went to the same school that he taught at for uh -huh. guitar lessons eventually and he'd see me and he was and he'd be like you made a big mistake giving up the violin. 
I didn't really even practice guitar that much when I first started taking lessons. So when did you get serious about it? Um, I don't know, I guess like towards the end of high school when I started thinking like what am I going to do with my life and it, it kind of felt like music was the default position. Yeah. Because I didn't, I didn't, wasn't really interested in that much else, and I was starting to get really into music, and, and I was into jazz by that point. And I, you know, I started practicing primarily out of fear, because uh-huh. I realized this is, you know, a sobering undertaking. Right. Uh, and everybody says don't do it, and it's the hardest thing you can do, and you know, nobody makes a living, and um, and that was true then. It's probably even worse now. Yeah, probably be really hard to be coming up now, but um, yeah. So I so I just threw myself into it and and started probably you know towards the maybe my senior year of high school I was I was starting to practice finally. But you were (laughs) but you were playing the rock music of the time and just oh yeah those are original questions sorry yeah yeah Uh, you abandoned classical music well. I kind of, I mean, you know, I, it was still in my ears and I still definitely appreciated it. Um, and then, you know, I I started getting really into it and like maybe the ages of 18, 19, but, um, but yeah, back when I, so I was just start picking off tunes off the radio and listening obsessively to the, you know, the one Hendrix record I had, you know, the first one. Yeah. And Beatles records and, and learning solos off the radio and uh, yeah it was just you know it really got in my blood so how do you when you look back on that and you see yourself as a player today how big a part of your playing do you feel that those early rock influences are I think it's all still there yeah um far as a certain attention to sound um, like a maybe kind of a saturation of sound mm. like it feels like it's coming from a rock place a certain yeah. I don't know, intensity lessons was because the teacher was a jazz guitar player you know the teacher mm-hmm. at the school that I mentioned before so I was like all right well if I'm going to take if I'm going to learn guitar I guess I'll learn jazz guitar so I started listening to jazz guitars because that's what I could relate to because they were playing the guitar like me you know right I wasn't listening to sax players because I, I didn't you know I didn't know what the vocabulary even meant at that point right um, so there was the you know, the Joe Pass record and Barney Kessel record and, and Pat Martino and mm. Wes. Uh, and those were the early guitar influences as far as jazz goes. 
Um, and, you know, but then I thought if, if I stick with this, it's going to, you know, I'm going to sound very guitaristic. And I, and I noticed that, uh, that when I started getting into, you know, a more brighter, broader spectrum of jazz music, the sax players always sounded more interesting. The lines were more interesting and they were fluid and, and uh, they, they were sort of more appealing to me as improvisers. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the first guitar player to come to this conclusion, but I thought, sure. like, you know, transcribing sax solos would, would maybe be more beneficial to me eventually. Right. And and lead me to a you know more of a, a real jazz vocabulary than than being more guitaristic. So what's one of the what's one of the um, sax solos that you transcribed that you feel was sort of a marker point for you when you could listen to transcribe and, and perhaps play this solo? Yeah. You felt like wow, I'm one of the first ones was somewhere. was Sonny Rollins' Blue Seven. Hmm. Um, and that was probably the first sax solo I, I transcribed. Um, and then, you know, there was, I mean, then, you know, then it went on from there. I think probably the, the most I've taken off of records was, was various John Coltrane solos. And, uh, you know, I'd try to play them. Yeah, you know, with the recording, try is right. the operative word. Um, you know, and when, then when, when all the false fingerings, overtones started, then I would kind of quit. But yeah, you get you get a lot of it. Right. So who were who was the who were the teachers you had that were most influential? I think you said you studied with Chuck Wayne. Yeah, he was definitely the most influential. Um, I did, you know, my first teacher was uh, John Stoll, who you may know. Oh, yeah, from Portland. Yeah, well, he was from or, New York originally, yeah, uh -huh. and, and I was lucky enough to get him the last year that he was in New York hmm. before he moved out. And, uh, and he was actually, he was really influential, probably more by example. Like, hmm. I, I would, you know, I walked in there, and I was, I guess, 14, and... You know, and at that point, I'd pretty much just been playing rock, and then he was playing these things that I don't know. They sounded like like hmm. <laughs> just stuff that I didn't know you could like. Well, I didn't, they were sounds that I couldn't identify, and they were just mysterious and, and beautiful. And it, probably just seeing him just noodle around on the very first day just changed the rest of my life, I think. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Because, uh, yeah, I, I, there were, they were just sounds that were unprecedented in, to my ears. So from what you played, maybe what you're describing is a more pianistic approach, which I think is something you're so great at, like these chords vo voicings and uh, Well, there are, chords that are, there are chords that are kind of more ambiguous, mm. you know, and, and there's mystery there because they can be interpreted in different ways depending on the context you know wow. just like an intervallic like a structure like sure like what I just played like this could be anything it could be it could be like a C chord or an A right. chord or a D chord wow or an E chord or 
the B flat chord. Or, I don't know, just go. A flat chord. <laughs> yeah. Can you? An e flat chord. Uh, <laughs> can go on. Would, would you do me a favor and play a <laughs> short excerpt, if you can, of a, of a standard that everybody knows? And, and use some of these ambiguous chords <coughs> as in that in a context so we can hear even more clearly what you mean okay Most people, most guitarists will play something like, right? Mm -hmm. So the first chord is generally thought of as, as E half diminished, E minor 7 flat 5. Right. But the melody note is the 4th or the 11th. So, you know, already, you know, you have, you have a over tension in, in the chord. But if I'm just going to play, you know, just, the, you know, your stock drop to voicings for that first chord they'd be like that without the melody note uh, with the melody note they you know, come with the melody note it, it turns into this or, or this or this um, and the way I, I look at this chord is it's I try to look at things from as many different way, places aspects as I can mm. and that gives me more like a kind of a broader palette to work with um, so I, I actually see this as a B flat major 7 flat 5 chord mm -hmm. you know over E and so then I could go into my arsenal of B 
B flat seven major seven flat five chords, um, and then so then I have that many more ways of interpreting that first harmony of that tune. Oh. You know, just for starters. Yeah, can you play a few of those? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, okay, so this is would be a second inversion. Be, I don't know technically you want to get with this podcast, but this would be a second inversion B flat major seven flat five, right? But, and these are just drop two voicings going up the inversions. All with E in the bass, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I could have I started here and then, you know. So they're technically okay. There are twenty-four ways of playing any seventh chord. So, so since I know twenty-four B flat major seven flat five chords, I now also know twenty-four E minor seven flat five with the eleventh in it chords. Right. So that's kind of a starting point. Um, I think I started. I started that. Yeah, little right out version. of the, right out of the gate with a. And this is just, chord. well, that's not that unusual. It's just, you know, I got the ninth. It's it's fun to just see what kind of open string mm. voicing you can get for any chord. So, yeah, you, you know, just think of a harmony. I mean, they're all going to be key specific. So, so if I think, if I try to come up with E half diminished voicings with open strings, I have to decide what are the open strings available. Obviously, you know, there's the minor third, here's the seventh, and here's the root. So there's a lot, and, and here's the root. So in this case, I just, I'm just leaving the G string open. I have the flat five here, I have the ninth here, the seventh here, and the eleventh here. Yeah, here's another one. And the ninth is down here, so that's kind of why that... Sounds yeah. nice. And then there's the minor, the minor second, just with this open string. And there's... So there's really a lot of value added when you think of these chords as simultaneous, so that the B flat chord with that F sharp, which is part of the, which is the ninth of the the E chord, if you mm -hmm. think of it as an E chord, yeah, makes for a pretty heady blend of tonality. Yeah. I mean, it's not even a blend. It's just it's we're still we're not even talking about polychords or anything. It's still all in True. kind of you know if you I'm interpreting it as coming out of uh, I guess the the sixth mode of melodic minor, right? So and so yeah. so you could have B flat major seven sharp five as well, and that will give you the ninth. The flat five will give you the root and the chord. So anyway, this is just like it's just an open string. Yeah. And then I, and then I mainly, mainly just think about voice leading and, and interpreting the harmonies um, with their um, you know with, with the scales that are associated with them. Yeah. Which are you know you, you choose what scale you want to you want to 
have represent that harmony. Mm. So from here, I kind of think I, I yeah. did something like that, and that's. I remember you doing that chord. It's beautiful. Again, it's kind of, there are a number of ways you can interpret just a, a shape like this, right? Mm -hmm. but, but I'm kind of thinking of it, I'm thinking of it as a C-sharp chord, actually, it's like a C-sharp, sharp five chord over A. Similar to the E, you know, the E chord was here. Now this yeah. is just an F minor chord. Yeah. So what's interesting, thinking about getting to know your playing more over the years and, and seeing your masterclass on my, mu my music masterclass.com on a lot of the chord yeah, stuff. Thanks for the plug, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I love that series. Um, the, there are of course a lot of great guitar players and a lot of them playing a lot of beautiful chords. And, um, and at the same time, you've stepped into this territory in a way that almost nobody else has with a sort of completist view of course, Mick Goodrick comes to mind. Yeah, well, he was a big influence. Yeah. And, and, and Ted Green as well. Ted Green, of course. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. You know, it's, that's just on another level if you watch some of those videos of him. Yes. And Mick... Of, it's unapproachable. Have you, have, you, have you worked with Mick or met him, or are you just a I fan have, of his books? Well, both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've met him. We actually did a gig together uh, maybe 15 years ago out in Boston. Um, I believe it was Peter Herbert and Gary Chafee and, mm. and us two. And I don't know if that was the first time I met him, but it was one of the first times, one of the only times really. And then I actually got to hang out with him because we have a mutual friend. So, um, uh, my friend brought me up to Boston maybe just two years ago or something and we hung out for a long time we had lunch and then I came over to his office and we just talked about stuff it's great
it's kind of been a slow build with your your own writing and your own records where they seem to be getting more and more well they're uh, probably getting more maybe a little more ambitious it's just as far as writing and, and performing but um and that that's what i want to ask you about is just in terms of you as the composer what's what's going on in your mind what are you what are you working towards what's um I What's wish, exciting I, for you? I wish I could tell you. It's I don't. I never really start with a very clear goal. I always start every piece just with kind of a minimal amount of information that I think will justify a piece to be written around it, and then I kind of see where it wants to go. And sometimes it ends up being you know a twenty-minute thing, and sometimes it's a four-minute thing. Mm. It kind of, I, you know, it sounds weird, but I kind of let the idea, you know, the original idea dictate what wants to be done with it. Meaning the original idea has to be strong. Yeah, well, like I said, it has to justify a piece being written for it. Yeah. You know, or with it. I mean, whether it's objectively strong is a matter of opinion, but right. it, I have to feel like it's worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I, I find you know ideas are the relatively easy part, mm-hmm. and then it's actually crafting it into something that's translatable, uh, and, and that's justified to exist in the world. Yeah. That's the hard part. Finding ways to develop a good idea is mm-hmm. maybe harder than coming up with a good idea. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't that the real work of composition, mm-hmm. that ideas can feel like they're a dime a dozen, and it's getting to the end of the piece, which is so hard? Yeah, and you can say the same thing about a solo. You know, you don't mm. actually have to start off with the greatest, most inspired phrase, but you can build a great solo off of uh, you know, a relatively banal phrase, mm. depending on how you manipulate it and develop it. Yeah. So... Can you give us an example of one of your compositions? Um, give us an idea that you began with that turned into a whole piece. As a lot of, as happens with a lot of ideas, I'm just kind of noodling around, and and I come up with this essentially just a, a pattern, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like I thought, what if I went like this? I always do that. Right. Or let's see, this would sound more like the actual tune. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll do it. I'll do it, I'll do it slowly because uh, I, I can't really even do anything fast right at this hour. But you know, I'm just I'm just going like.
sloppy. Sorry, everybody. But anyway, so that's the. <laughs> but I guess that's, that's it, the so pattern. I think it's sixty-five. It ends up being sixty-five notes. Um, but it's just like okay, so threes, and then fours, and then just all the way down and up. You know, it's interesting. Thank not you for brain surgery. <laughs> break it down like that which I had not I couldn't hear that um, until you said it but it's funny how when you actually break things down a lot of times they appear a lot simpler than they sound and I think that's the art of composition is using something that may seem prosaic when it's explained but sounds mysterious yeah if it's not you want to try to make people think you're smarter than you actually are that's the <laughs> goal um, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. Um, Give us another. Then, uh, so uh, then I, I, I kind of, um, I took that and then I thought it would be f fun to, I think I had a, bunch, a, a few different guitars and different, um, not different tunings, but different octaves. Like mm -hmm. I had, there's one that's an octave lower and then one, one that's a fourth higher mm -hmm. and then one that's a fourth, a fifth lower. So I thought I, I, I kind of wanted to create a piece that used all those different uh, guitars. Um, wow. So that's when I came up with the idea of just layering that arpeggio, um, and, and I just did it. I did it at home. You know, I just kind of demoed it and I played it all into GarageBand. Was all of those guitars doing the same thing, doubling? Yeah, but in, I mean, in different. Uh, on different chords, oh. not all not all playing this very chord, but but playing in parallel you know parallel chords, yes. right? Yes. Um, what ended up what ended up using is just uh, the the high guitar, which is a like a Baby Taylor tune from A to A, so it's mm. a fourth higher, um, and and my acoustic. Mm. So it ended, ended up being just two, but that gave me the idea to, of, of layering, and then I would, and then I took, um, I guess, six layered guitars all in rhythmic unison, and then I staggered them. So I did. So that's kind of like a post-production thing, and that's so it ends up being like eighteen acoustic guitars playing that, and, and that's where it, where it gets that. That's where the texture comes from. This is so why you don't perform this music. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Definitely not that tuned. Yeah. Wow. So so. Uh, <clears throat> any other pieces of yours whose um, you know original idea I'd be interesting to talk about in terms of where where it led. Um. Okay. Well, there's a you know this piece that's. 20 years old already, but uh, it's based on this pattern. Okay, start. And the, the neat thing about that is it could be interpreted in four or three. Mm -hmm. so
So it's like an African mm. bell pattern. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I thought it would be an interesting challenge to try to interpret that all on on the guitar. So mm. um, I'll so just to get a more open sound to the guitar like that, and and the, so the. The initial pattern is, I haven't played this in, in years, so forgive the performance here, but... So, so that's what I was doing with my hands on the table just before. material is just like a pattern of nine notes, kind of a chromatic thing. So the, the threes are on top here, and then the fours are on the bottom, and the pattern is yeah. kind of... That's, that's great. Well, just, just for those who can't see this, which is everybody... The right hand is is picking all the open strings, while the left hand is hammering on without any picking going on. That's why it sounds like two people are playing. some of the playing situations that you found yourself in as a sideman also um, notably of course with Paul Motion and maybe you could just reflect for a moment on how Paul playing with Paul for so many years affected your artistry and um, you know I honestly didn't play with him for that long uh, I, we did you know 
Maybe, maybe just like a couple of years. Uh, it was only a couple of years. I'm, I'm hallucinating that I thought it was more like six or seven. Well, maybe it was more like, I don't know, it was, but it's like sporadic. Yeah. Um, one of his many groups. Like, you know, after a couple of tours, when he stopped, he stopped touring, it would just be a week at the Vanguard every year or something with his, with his octet. But, and then I'd play, okay, so I would play with him with also, also with Bill McHenry's group. Hmm. So like a couple of times a year. Um, but he's been a, a gigantic influence since, uh, I'd, I'd say since like 1984 for me. Hmm. And um, especially the, the record um, should have happened a long time ago. Hmm. That was a really important record in my life. Um, yeah, it kind of kept me sane through uh, through some long road trips with Jack McDuff. <laughs> well, well I, we've missed that in the podcast. Uh, yeah, let's not jump even jump back. No, we're going to have to do a different <laughs> podcast for that. Midnight <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Tales from Station Wagons Broken Down and. There were no West Texas roads, no station wagons, but there was a there was a truck that we used to travel in, a Ford High Cube, you know, and then we pretty much just like would live in there. Had a shag carpet and swivel chairs. <laughs> it was a real uh, like '70s relic. Uh, and there, yeah, so so I'd listen to that record on my Walkman just. It was a beautiful soundtrack to the country going by, mm. and and it, it also kind of made me remember that <clears throat> there was another kind of music <laughs> besides the one that I was failing so miserably to to play uh-huh. with him. <laughs> um, but yeah, entering Paul's sound world is was uh, a privilege. You know, it was just such a clear idea. And a, and a pure idea of what he wanted um, his groups to sound like. Mm-hmm. And he didn't really even have to give much direction. You know, it's just kind of like all came from whatever he was emanating, you know, whether it was just him as a person or, or the sound he was getting out of the drums. Mm-hmm. Um, you all like sort of like effortlessly existed in that, in, in, within his sound world.
So when you were listening to those early trio, Paul Motion trio records, and I think we're talking about the 80s here, mm-hmm. which are, I agree, are some of the, my favorite jazz recordings of all time. How important was Bill Frizzell to you as a somebody who oh, was hugely important encouraging your development? Yeah. Um, I think the first record that I ever heard of, of his was his duo record with Tim Byrne, theoretically. Um, and sometimes I go back and I listen to that record and, and then I, I realize that Basically, everything I do it came from that record. <laughs> like yeah, that's I, I have to admit, I haven't heard that. I thought I'd heard just about. Oh no, you need to you need to hear that. Wow, it's really incredible. Listen to that one to death. Mm. Um, yeah, it's almost embarrassing like how how much I stole from that one record. Wow. <laughs> huh. Um, Yeah, it was really eye-opening to, you know, after hearing him on records for years, see, seeing him for the first time at the 55 bar, it was with, with, with Paul, actually. Uh, they played at the 55 bar? Yeah, in like 1985 or 6 <laughs> or something. Wow. And just to see that, you know, being done in real time by actual people, mm. it's it like a religious experience. Was that the quintet or the trio? They were actually, they were playing, it was a gig with Laney Stern, and oh. and I believe Harvey Swartz was the bass player, and, and those two. Yeah, 86, 85, something like that. Wow. So what would you say it is about, or let me put it in the past tense, what was it at the time that you heard in Bill's playing that spoke to you about your own future? What did you listen to and go, man? You know, I think it's his relationship with sound that is just a, really apparent. Um, it made me think of sound in a, in a different way and, and just how important it is to be unified with your own sound. Um, and he was also playing guitar in a way that I hadn't really even considered. Um, just, you know, just really economical and harmonically really interesting but oblique and it's kind of like mysterious. Hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe the mystery of it was, was what attracted me so much. Um, And it was just so personal, you know. Any anyone who's come up with a unique and and unprecedented and personal voice is is going to be inspiring to me. Yeah. And it was like I said, it was also a way of playing guitar that I hadn't really uh, experienced before. I and like. It, and it was refreshing too because it wasn't about you know technique like yeah. you need a technique to play that stuff so well and I remember one one thing he, he did with harmonics it was a, like this incredible th- just like a very casual 
um, run of, of just harmonics like up up the neck and it but it was kind of it was kind of like mind-bogglingly flat fast and, and executed really well and you know so you really you need like great technique to make anything sound really good hmm. so it's not like there was no technique but it wasn't about the traditional like shops building kind of stuff that most of us are yeah and I still am just kind of like dealing with yeah the word mis- mystery s- stood out for me in what you described mm-hmm. that that, uh, that it's <clears throat> a lot of what he does sometimes feels like a sleight of hand because it yes. doesn't appear that much is happening like a magician magician yeah that's a great but all of a sudden it. the rabbit's out of the hat and you don't just don't know how it happened uh-huh yeah, yeah, I got that feeling. I saw, a, I don't know if you were there, but he did a solo concert uh, maybe two and a half, three years ago at a church in Brooklyn at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. I missed that, and I'm very sorry to have missed it. Yeah, it was one of the greatest concerts I've ever seen. And, and again, it kind of appeared like he was barely doing anything and yet it was some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard for an hour consistently it was also it was packed in there 8am <laughs> it was um, just a, a great atmosphere wow so what are some of the other playing situations that that uh, you've been in that have been most formative for you and I'm we're going to follow that with the question, what are playing situations that you like to happen that haven't happened yet? A wish list. Um, Let's start with the first one. Who, are, who are, What are some of the <clears throat> the groups or even the records you've made? What what stands out for you as, wow, this is, this is something that really has stayed with me and affected me? Well, as we talked about before, Paul's groups are, are a lot of fun, and, and especially the smaller situations with um, mainly, I guess, with Bill McHenry and Reed Anderson. Mm. Um, so a lot of real openness. I, I think the situations I, I find most rewarding are the most open ones, not where I have my head buried in the music so mm. much, but probably just because I'm lazy. And I just <laughs> I don't have to think too much when I'm improvising. Mm. So, um, and, and the groups I've had with Tony Malaby have been a lot of fun as well. Mm. Um, there's so much freedom there. It's, it's like I can play almost anything and it sounds correct. Mm. <laughs> um, and I, I get, you know, a lot of leeway to free reign to kind of do whatever I want. Yeah. Um, One of the most rewarding things is is the duo I have with Theo Blackman. Yeah, and that's um, again lots of freedom, and he's been like a, just a really important partner of mine, like over the years in my own groups and and as well as the duo. Um, you use voice a lot in your recordings. Why is mm-hmm. that? It has to do with the value I place on melody. And you know it, it originated because we we started the duo in 
probably 1994, and at that point I still had a trio that I'd been you know, playing and recording with. And at some point I just had the idea of adding him to the trio just to reinforce some of the melodies that I thought needed to come out a little more clearly on the, you know, the, like they were guitar melodies, but since I was playing like other stuff and I just thought maybe what would happen if the voice reinforced some of the stuff. So I, I didn't, at that point, didn't have separate vocal parts written, but I just thought you could play the guitar parts. And I thought it worked well, like the timbre worked well, especially his voice. I don't think it would work with with any singer, but um, something about the blend of our sounds yeah. that, that works for me. So, um, And that's kind of how that started, and, and then I started writing specific parts for him and kind of evolved from there. Yeah. And probably because of my long association with him, I feel like the melodies I write won't really work with any other instrument. Like I've tried it. Really? Uh, but I'm really hearing I'm really hearing a very specific timbre. Yeah. For the most part. It's interesting because he's he's got such a pure, beautiful bell-like mm-hmm. um, sound, and and it 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 is a, a little bit reminiscent of of the sound you get on guitar. Now that you mention it, but I, I hearing you describe it makes it much more apparent why it works because it's a. Uh, I think something like that's hard to put in words, but it's just a quality. Um, that's in both of your sounds it seems to magnetize towards each other I think we both have uh, you know whether how conscious it is or not but we're both really conscious of the idea of total immersion in in one sound in each other's sounds Hmm. And, and maybe that's why it works. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. And you know, I think we have a similar aesthetic as well. We like, I don't know, open spaces or hmm. as as well as density. Yeah. So, who are some people? Are there people that you would like to play with, or? It's, if you if you had a wish list of things that you want to do, whether it's make make a, a record that you haven't made yet or mm-hmm. uh, collaborate with <clears throat> somebody, um, Sonny Rollins or <laughs> whoever it is, um, what about that? I would love to play with Jack DeJanette. Hmm. Um, I feel like I... I if it was to happen, I'd need to really practice for it, but <laughs> I would try to rise to the occasion. Yeah. Whether even just a, in a duo or, or a trio, just, you know, some some small kind of formation. Hmm. But, I, you know, I, I did have the privilege of playing with him once at a just a jam session um, that my friend Tim Reese organized up, up in Woodstock. And it was just, uh, it's just so comfortable, you know. Mm. It was playing so much 
but so supportive at the same time. It's such an amazing feel. It, yeah, I felt like free to do anything. Wow. Um, so that would be at the top of the list. Right okay. There. And composers that have influenced you? Oh my God. <laughs> top five or any five. Um, probably have to, I'd have to put Paul Motion in there. Hmm. Uh, I'd have to put Ligeti, Bartok, hmm. Ravel. Um, okay, that's four. <laughs> that that's great, and that's a on a Carter. That that's a that's a great list. Well, it's hard formidable, to argue with a list like that. Formidable, formidable figures, yeah. Um, oh, also Egberto Gismonti as right. a composer and a guitarist, and Ralph Towner as well. You know, that's like a whole other side of that you know, we haven't talked about, but those those guys are very inspiring. To I me. I was into Oregon early on in my life. Were Were you? Did you? Were they yep. formative for you? Yep. Some yep. of the first ways that improvisation and classical instrumentation um, and folk music in a certain way, if you could use that term broadly, came together. Yeah, no, I don't know what it was about that, but again, it was a, a sound that sort of appeared out of nowhere. Just that particular combination of, of instruments and that approach and that compositional vision. Yeah. It was, it was unique at that time. Yeah. Have you heard that record with the Moscow Philharmonic no. accompanying them? I think it's the Philharmonic. It's, it's, a, it's a Russian orchestra. Uh -huh. no, oh my God, that. it's so beautiful. It's beautiful orchestrations to their music. Hmm. Yeah. Can you um, close us out with some more guitar playing? Maybe you uh, choose another standard to play because I think if we use that as our common language it, it's easier for the greatest number of people to uh, okay. have an experience right. I don't mean a standard standard it could be a Wayne Short a jazz tune that that, that will identify yeah um you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Jim Hall as as, oh, as being course, yeah. maybe the overriding influence on me. Uh, you know, probably maybe more than anybody that, I, that I've already mentioned. So, um, you know, so many things I could say about him. Yeah. But just as far as being a true improvisational composer or compositional improviser. Yes. <laughs> and using the full range of, uh, and scope of the guitar, um, like a little orchestra or a little uh, jazz group. So anyways, that's all to say that one of my favorite recordings of his was Alone Together with Ron Carter yeah. and the version of um, I'll Remember April on there. Mm -hmm. um, so so I could play that like in the, the slow way that they, they do, or it's not going to be. It's not going to be the way they do, but it'll be slow. Yeah.
Ben, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been illuminating. Oh, it's been fun. Thanks, Joel. All right. Mm-hmm.